Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Haunted Road, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. In 1912, in Villisca, Iowa, a family of six plus two of their guests were the victims of a horrible axe murderer. This unspeakable crime took place as they slept in their beds and horrified the small town of 2,000 people. Since then, the house has been dubbed the Villisca Axe Murder House and is the site of many paranormal happenings, attracting paranormal investigators from around the globe. Robert Larson is one such paranormal investigator from Rhinelander, Wisconsin. In 2014, he was investigating the Villisca Axe Murder House with his parents. He told them he wanted to attempt an experiment where he would recreate the scene the murderer left following the horrible crime that took place there. He asked them to leave him completely alone, but to monitor the building from outside, from their DVR cameras. Robert proceeded to stage the home exactly as it had been found the morning of the murders, including covering all the mirrors with cloth, drawing the curtains, leaving a bloody bowl of water in the kitchen, and even laying a large pile of bacon on the kitchen counter. We'll talk about the meaning of that later. The only thing Robert didn't have was an axe. So he made do with a knife. Robert lay down in one of the beds in the downstairs bedroom and clutched the knife in his right hand. Robert proceeded to call out to what he believed to be the ghost of the killer in the dark. He hurled horrible names and insults at the killer and provoked unrelentingly. The last thing Robert remembers is a strange light anomaly emerging from the closet in the room he was in and heading straight for him. When he came to, The knife he had been clutching was buried in his shoulder. He was screaming and his parents were calling for help. Robert was severely injured. He was actually life-flighted to the nearest hospital where he coded due to blood loss, but thankfully revived. The police ruled that Robert did this to himself, but to this day, he swears otherwise. He claims the knife was in his right shoulder at an angle that would have been impossible for him to do himself, and that even then, he is right-handed and had the knife in his right hand. Try that for yourself. Hold something in your right hand and try to reach your right shoulder with enough force to bury a knife in it. We will never know the answers as to what happened that night. Robert's actions were just out of the camera frame, and his parents were so horrified by what they heard on the recorder Robert was running at the time, that they destroyed it. Now, I actually interviewed Robert face-to-face. I expected to walk in and find a man who may not be entirely truthful, but I believe him. Whatever happened there that night has left him a different person. 
And it was, to this day, probably one of the most powerful interviews I've ever conducted with someone. I think that was the first time I had ever met someone who had had a paranormal encounter that made me question whether paranormal activity can actually be dangerous because I had never heard a story like this. And the look in his eyes was one of just complete and utter terror. Eventually, we were able to get Robert to return to the house. And I think that was incredibly therapeutic moment for him that he needed. But it was also in the middle of the day and he was surrounded by people. I don't think you could pay him enough to ever re-enter that home by himself. I'm Amy Bruni, and this is Haunted Road. Built in 1868 on Lot 310, the house at 508 East 2nd Street in Villisca, Iowa, is known by a few names. The Josiah B. and Sarah Moore House, the Villisca Axe Murder House, or just the Murder House. Josiah B. Moore and his family bought the house in 1903. Now, Josiah was a pretty well-known businessman locally. He owned and operated a farm implement store and was a successful and well-regarded person. Also known as Joe, he was a moderately prosperous and small-town businessman raising a large family and a small, plain house. Joe was a cheerful, well-liked, simple man who, in the words of the Iowa Attorney General, was at peace with everybody. Also in the home was his wife, Sarah Montgomery, who was 39, Herman Montgomery, 11, Mary Catherine, 10, Arthur Boyd, 7, and Paul Vernon, 5. Now, let's go back to the summer of 1912. You know, Villisca, Iowa was this small town with a little over 2,000 people. And at that time in early June, the streetlights had actually been turned out due to a dispute between the city and the power company over the cost of electricity. So between that and overcast skies, Villisca was said to have returned to a medieval darkness. Now that night in June, Mary Catherine invited two of her friends, sisters Lena Gertrude and Ina May. Lena was 12 and Ina May 8 to stay over at their house that night. The eight of them got home between 9.45 and 10 p.m. In the late hours of the 9th or the early hours of the 10th of June, one or more persons entered the Moore home and killed all eight people inside, the six Moors and the two Stillinger girls. The weapon of choice, or convenience, was Josiah's axe, which had been left outside. The killer walked past the two rooms where the children were sleeping and bludgeoned Josiah, then Sarah, with the flat end of the axe while both were still sleeping. The next room the killer visited was of the four more children. Evidence indicates that all were asleep when they too were bludgeoned. The ceilings in the parents' and the children's rooms had gouge marks from the upswing. The final stop was the room where the two Stillinger sisters slept. Lena may be the only one who awoke before she was killed. Early the next morning, neighbor Mary Peckham went about her morning chores, but noticed that the Moors weren't doing the same. When she knocked on the door and received no response, she found it was locked. 
Peckham called on Ross Moore, Josiah's brother. He tried to look into the house and supposedly shouted, trying to alert his brother's family to his presence, but there was no response. After finding the right skeleton key, Ross entered the home and first found the bedroom on the main floor where Lena and Ina had been sleeping. According to testimony from Dr. J. Clark Cooper, a physician who was called to the Moore home that day, all we could see was an arm of someone sticking from under the edge of the cover with the blood on the pillows. And I went over and lifted the covers and saw what I supposed was a body, some entire stranger, and a mere child at the back of the bed. I did not recognize them at all, nor did anyone else at the scene. The marshal, Henry Hank Horton, was called by Ross. Horton found somebody murdered in every bed. Each body had been bludgeoned with the blunt side of the axe roughly 20 to 30 times. Strange things stood out to those who were first on the scene. According to Johnny Hauser, the current caretaker of the home and a paranormal investigator, all the mirrors and windows in the house were covered. The oil lamps were placed at the edge of the beds. The Moore's drawers had been ransacked in order to find coverings for the mirrors and windows. All the windows except for two had their curtains drawn. The two remaining ones did not have curtains, so were covered with material found within the house. The kitchen table held a plate of uneaten food and a bowl of bloody water, probably where the murderer washed. The axe had been partially cleaned and was found in the room where the Stillinger sisters had slept. Next to the axe, there was a nearly two-pound slab of bacon. A second slab was in the icebox. Now, as far as suspects, remarkably, the Velisca murders remain unsolved to this day. However, that's not to say there weren't plenty of suspects. Most notably was a man by the name of Reverend Kelly. He had actually attended the Sunday school service that took place the evening of the murders. He left on an early morning train before the bodies were even discovered. He acted strangely in the weeks following the murders, including returning to Villisca two weeks later and pretending to be an investigator with the Scotland Yard. It wasn't until five years later that he was tried for the crime, and while he did confess, twice, he was ultimately acquitted. But what strikes me most about him is his confession. He claims to have had insomnia the night of the murders and to have walked to the nearby Presbyterian church. While alone in the church, I heard a voice. It said, go further. I went out and walked to the end of the street where I saw a shadow which beckoned me to follow. The shadow led me to the rear of the Moore house. I saw an ax on a rubbish heap. I picked the ax up by the handle. The voice again spoke, saying, Go on, follow the shadow. Slay utterly. At some point during the confession, Kelly explained, The text, Slay utterly, had been in my mind before the murders and has been ringing in my ears ever since. I have had a hard time resisting the impulse to slay. My soul is relieved now for the first time in five years. Slay utterly. Now think about that. He describes being almost in a trance-like state. And for some reason, that reminds me so much of what happened to Robert Larson. 
I spent multiple nights investigating the Velisca Axe murder house, and I have to say it's one of those places that quite literally still haunts me to this day. I just had a lot of trouble going into the space, merely because of what happened there and the ages of the victims. But it's honestly kind of a serene little house. When you're there during the day, the light beams in, it's very bright, and The way I handled it was I kept reminding myself that the way the family and the Stillinger sisters died did not define them. That they spent a lot of time in that home with wonderful, happy memories. Because I do feel like sometimes we go into a place where a terrible tragedy has happened and we focus so much on that that we forget that people actually lived in that space before and how much more powerful living is than the moment of death. And so that's how I was able to cope with it. But I do feel like something very strange is going on there. I am not sure if it is the ghost of the murderer revisiting the space or if it is something somehow created by all of the investigators and visitors and people who kind of go there and infuse it with thoughts of the murders, or if it's the ghosts of the family themselves. But I will say that it is one of the only places that I do question whether it is entirely safe for everyone. So I do caution any investigators going into that house to respect it. It's incredibly important to always have respect when investigating, but especially in the Velisca Axe Murder House, because none of us want to end up the way Robert Larson did. After a quick break, I'm going to interview Johnny Hauser. Johnny is a paranormal investigator and is actually the caretaker of the Velisca Axe Murder House. He has a lot of great stories about the place, but also has some intriguing ideas and insight as to why the house is still haunted. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. So I am now joined by Johnny Hauser, who is the, I guess, resident paranormal investigator at the Velisca House. Would that be your title? Uh, yeah, I'm kind of a all titles with the X House, the the tour guide, the overnight guy, the website guy, the lawn mowing guy. <laughs> like, oh yeah, a jack of all trades. Jack of all trades for that house. I'm the Norman Bates of the Axe Murder House. And so you actually live right next door. Is that correct? Yeah, I live right next door um, in Mary Peckham's house, and she, of course, was the neighbor that initially found or noticed something was wrong at the house next door, which is interesting because the more children used to play over in my house. I mean, Mary was like a grandma to them. Oh, so there's a a major connection there. Well, we kind of have found that, interestingly enough, at the Lizzie Borden house as well. 
because there were children that lived next door to the Lizzie Borden house that used to play in the Lizzie Borden house that knew Lizzie. So it's interesting, these kind of correlations between these two very brutal axe murders. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and there's some stories that have happened at my house with my daughter and stuff that kind of made me wonder if they can go, you know, back and forth between the houses. Um, and I, just to tell the story real quick, my daughter texted me. I don't know why she texted me, but at like 3 a.m. And I happened to wake up and hear my phone. She said, Dad, I'm stuck in the bathroom. And I'm hearing humming and crying. So I thought, what? And I get up and the door was stuck, but it probably was from humidity or whatever. And the next day, I was like, I'm going to get a hold of the overnights at the Axe House to see if they were outside. And that's what she was hearing. And them being ghost hunters, they had everything logged down to the minute, you know. And they're like, no, we were in the attic at this time. It's like, okay, it wasn't them. But then they came back with, the house was super active, except for right then. It was strangely quiet. So I thought, could that have been the kids coming over here? Because it's familiar to them. Right. That's interesting. Now, that kind of gamut of activity, do you find that the activity in the house is more extreme at certain times? Uh, or is it with certain people? Like, what do you think triggers what goes on there? I, I've spent decades at the house, you know, um, I've done over 400 overnights alone. And right off the bat, I was looking for patterns, there has to be a pattern in this somewhere. And I've looked for patterns in birthdays, anniversaries, moon phases, the eclipse while everybody's outside staring at it. I'm doing an EVP session in the Axe House, you know, trying to see if that does anything. And I found nothing. I found no rhyme or reason to it. I do see that there is a correlation with people sometimes. Interestingly enough, nurses and teachers seem to have a lot of good luck in there. And I think it takes a certain person to do those jobs. I couldn't do it. I couldn't be a nurse or a teacher. You know, it's not for the money, obviously, like it's for the passion. They're passionate people and they're very loving people. And I think that resonates with the spirits. So I think probably the hardest part for me investigating Velisca is that it it gets in my head a lot, just kind of what went on there. Um, you know, obviously I'm a mom, but I don't think it's just moms. I think anybody is completely bothered at the idea of a number of children being killed so brutally. And how do you kind of separate yourself as you work in that space every day? How do you separate yourself between what went on there and and then also what your job is there? You know, it's I totally get it. I totally get how horrible it is. It's terrible. I wish it like I hate the axe murder house more than anyone. You know, I hate what happened there. I wish it didn't even exist, but it does. And I think that these <clears throat> these kids should have laughed and played and grew up and fell in love and had their own children, but they were robbed of that. If I can tell their story and keep them alive in that way, I think it's totally worth it. Um, well, not worth what happened, but worth what I do for a living. One thing that gives me a lot of excitement it's probably twice a month. I'll have the 13 year old little girl. It's never the little boys. It's always the little girls that come up and they tell me when I graduate high school, I'm going to this college for forensic science. Cause this inspired me. Mm. And I'm like, wow, if a tragedy can be turned into a positive and it lights a fire under this young mind to stop one crime, that's amazing. 
but also, you know, it's, if I wasn't there doing it, I'm afraid somebody else would be there that would make it a joke, make it a circus attraction. And I, I know that I do it with love and compassion for the crimes that happen to those poor little kids and that family. But on the flip side, I'm not convinced they're even there. Right. And that's something I wanted to ask about as well. So I have, um, I've investigated there for a few nights and I didn't really find any evidence of the children, but I do know that many people have. Uh, and then we did have an experience that we felt might have been with something more, I don't like to say negative, but some, some, someone or something that was a, a little more angry and a little more malicious. And, you know, your thoughts go to this must be the ghost of the murderer, you know, but what, what do you think that is? Who do you think that is? I think that everywhere on this planet where something horrible has happened, it leaves that negative imprint. It's just like you walk into a room where someone had an argument, you feel that negative energy. It's very real and it lingers. This place had an atom bomb of negative energy dropped on it. Could that negative energy manifest as whatever it wants to be it a little kid? You know, there's a lot of things that happened to me aren't something a little kid from 1912 would be doing, assuming we keep the same personality and death as we do life, you know? Um, but then I go even further back to was something here before the murders even happened, the shadow that gave Reverend Kelly an ax. Like, nobody's talking about shadow figures in 1918. You know, I, I can remember in the eighties, they were aliens. Then they're interdimensional time travelers. And mm. now they're who knows what was there something in the house beforehand? Maybe a shadow gave Reverend Kelly an ax preyed on him because he wasn't quite mentally stable at the time. I mean, he was schizophrenic and back then with no medicine or understanding of the, the illness, you know, is there something in there that preys on people that aren't firmly rooted in their faith or extremely strong minded when they go into buildings like this and start yelling and screaming and trying to get stuff to happen. And I also kind of feel like the place is like a mirror. It just reflects back to you what you put into it. Hmm. If you go in there positive, it's going to give you positive. If you go in there with the come at me thing, you know, it's like, yeah. good luck with that. Um, because I watch overnights and these are legit paranormal investigators that take it serious. They know how to debunk. They know what a wind or what's a knock, you know, normal house settling noise. The one group will run out terrified at 11 PM, leave half their gear. I got to mail it back to them. <laughs> And then the next night, they'll be like, oh, it's the most positive experience I ever had. Uh, I felt a little child hug me and I teared up. And I'm like, how is this the same location? Right. I mean, I think that just in general, hauntings react to the vibe in the space, you know, and, and that goes for the living and the dead. You know, you can have a, a really great dinner party happening and then a guest can arrive who's just a total downer and shift the entire mood of what's happening in the room. And I think if you apply that to paranormal investigation as well, you will get those kind of results from from the spirits or from whatever that energy is there. So that kind of leads me to experiences that you've you've personally had or that you've heard of in the house. 
Can you kind of go through maybe a couple just very powerful experiences or things that you would you would describe as as something scary or, or you know what I mean? I just I'm curious. I want to I want to give listeners kind of the vibe of the house because I experienced the gamut there. I experienced that kind of positive moment and the negative moment. So I'm just wondering if you could kind of pass on some of those. Oh, man, over 15 years of being in this place, I've seen, you know, just the normal footsteps door open and closing there for like a month there's a lot of poltergeist activity of things stacking and arranging which is odd because nobody lives there at all it's just a empty place i've seen the positive i've seen the negative one of the most profound things that i've ever experienced was a friday night the overnights canceled for whatever reason so i thought i'm just going to go in fix some some things in the upstairs bedroom Lock the kitchen door so nobody could walk in. And as I'm up there, somebody walks in the house. I'm like, come on, people, we're closed. It's like, well, obviously, idiot, they broke in, you know, because it's like nighttime. And I thought, they have no idea I'm upstairs, so I'm going to have fun with this. And I hide in the kid's room closet, and this plan was to scare this kid, jump out, you know, and just do the, why are you breaking in? If you want to see it, I'll just show it to you. So the walking around downstairs for like 10 minutes, it comes upstairs into the room I'm in. I kick the closet door open, do the big blah, nothing. There was nothing. And I couldn't even move. I couldn't talk. The I always heard, you know, oh, I felt a rush of cold air. I thought, yeah, everybody says that. I've never experienced it. That time I did. I checked the whole house. The door was locked. Watch the surveillance video. There was nothing. And what really got me was at no time during this whole thing transpiring, did I think a ghost, it was somebody broke in the house because it was so loud and so blatant and so obvious that there was no, no debunking that was, I mean, somebody walked in the house and up the stairs. Wow. And I've seen, you know, a lot of like uh, Amityville quality of the house of mental, mental manipulation. And I've experienced that in there. To where, and especially in the downstairs bedroom, Ina and Lena's room, where you're just kind of zoning out and pretty soon you're just like out of it. You go out of the house and, you know, it's like an hour or two later, you like start coming back to normal. And that's a, that's a very scary part of the house for me. I know what it can do, so I don't push it anymore. Well, that leads me to, uh, to Robert Larson, who we were able to interview when Adam and I investigated there. And I walked into that interview ready to not believe him or ready to kind of find a way to disprove his story. And I guess I just didn't really have any idea how extreme it actually was. Like Because I'm sure you remember when the story started going around in the paranormal circles with what happened with him, it was very, uh, oh, yeah, this guy cut himself to to get the spirits to come out. And when we actually spoke with him and I found out he actually bled out and had to be, you know, life flighted to a hospital and coded, like it was so much more extreme than that. And that happened in that bedroom. So do you think he was kind of a victim of that like mental manipulation? Yeah. I mean, you know, it was the second time he'd been there and I get to know these people pretty well. And I mean, he, he just seemed like a normal dude, you know, just a normal guy. And I remember, I remember him saying, I'm going to give the house a piece of my mind tonight. I'm like, Hey boy, (laughs) you know, but I hear that like a million times a year. And so I I go home and I wake up and I'm tagged and all this stuff on social media. I walk over there and 
you know, I find out what happened. I didn't even want to go in the house. Honestly, I made two friends come over with me to walk in and it was, I don't know. I mean, that's one of those experiences walking in that house right after it happened that I'll never forget. I felt so bad for him because I was reading all these things of he did it to be on TV or he did it to be rich or he cut himself to get the ghosts to do stuff. Or I read one where he stabbed himself multiple times in the stomach in the yard. I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> You know, it's so many rumors, but until you sit and you know, I mean, you guys know to sit in this room and talk to this guy and feel his sincerity. I don't know what happened, but I know that I've experienced moments in that house to where you're just kind of out of it. And luckily I've left. That really struck me talking to Robert. It's funny because I, I wasn't aware that other people had that kind of mental moment in that room. And that's really exactly what he described was this kind of, he kind of drifted off. He, he, First, he initially was swearing at the killer. And, and I, as you know, you know, he set everything up exactly like the killer left it. And he started swearing and yelling at the killer while he was laying on one of the beds in that room. And he said he just like a feeling overtook him. And he looked over at the closet and he saw this large light anomaly come toward him. And then he blacked out. And the next thing he remembers was waking up screaming with the knife in his shoulder and that really just kind of puts into perspective, it really went against everything I'd ever thought about the paranormal <laughs> because, you know, I, I've always, it's the one time I've ever been like, this could be a dangerous situation if you don't go into this with a strong mind. Um, not that he doesn't have a strong mind, but just, you know, that you feel strong as you go in and not put yourself into a vulnerable position. So after that happened, did you guys have to or did you have to put any rules in place or do you warn people before they investigate? Martha actually said, can you put no weapons, please, on the website? And I'm just like, do we need to do that? Like, <laughs> you know, I, I feel like that's pretty self-explanatory. Um, as far as myself, we get a lot of, I, I see a lot of young, new paranormal investigators popping up, which is really exciting for me. But they'll come to the Axe House and they're like, we just started a team last month. This is our first investigation. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> okay. So I'll spend a little extra time with them to warn them, you know, like if somebody starts feeling weird or anything, like go outside, take a breath. Don't push the issue in this place. And I always remind everybody that's investigating. I'll end it with like, just remember what happened here. Little kids were murdered, you know come about it with some respect. So I just try and one-on-one -on -one look them in the face and, you know, just tell them, like, be respectful about it. Don't push yourself. This, this place is no joke, you know? Uh, and I hope that they take a little part of that and roll with it. Of course, you're going to have some people that don't, and there's no way of weeding those people out. You know what I mean? Right, exactly. Have you had any other kind of close calls like that or, or, or incidents where you felt it could kind of go south again? Or do you think that was just a one-off moment? I believe it could go south at any time. I think it's all the intent of the people going in there. I've had, you know, paranormal investigators that's been there 20, 30 times leave within an hour and they're like, 
it was just off. Something just felt off, like something bad was about to happen. So we thought we just wouldn't push it. Do you feel like you've kind of developed a relationship with the house over the years? Um, you know, you've been there for so long now. And and where do you see yourself going? Do you see yourself staying there forever? Or like, I mean, do you feel some kind of like you owe it to the house in some way? I mean, at this point, it's been so long. Yeah, I mean, I've... I have a I found a picture of my son and I in the attic and he barely came up past my knee little little boy and he's out of college and getting married now you know so it's like wow I've been there a long time and then as weird as it sounds and I've talked to other people that you know have haunted locations or things of this nature and they feel very attached to it I almost feel like big brother in a weird way like protector of the house you know i after the stabbing went down i walked in and i said hey like i gotta work here leave me alone i'll leave you alone we gotta have some boundaries going on and then i was like you need me here because if i'm not here you don't have a revolving cast of people to mess around with <laughs> you know so i was like trying to bargain a little bit but I, i'm just so attached to the history in the house I'll always have something to do with the axe house in the future. Um, whether it's just on the back end of it, you know, I, I never say I'm always going to do something for the rest of my life because opportunities come what, what not, you know, but I'll probably always have something to do with the axe house. If anything, just making sure it's ran the way it should be ran. Right. I mean, Villisca is such an interesting little town, you know, having been there and spent multiple days there. I love how you can walk into a store or the pharmacy or something and they instantly just ask, oh, are you here to see the, the murder house? Like they know, they know who is in town and why. Do you think that they're always going to keep it open like that? Do you think it's good for the town or do you think that at some point it might become a private residence again? Well, it's on the historic registry. So it's, always going to be a historic landmark. It's not going anywhere. I don't foresee anyone ever wanting to live in it. It's great for what it is, but you know, we're talking a house built in the 1880s. There's gaps above the door. There's no insulation, let alone what happened there. You know, it, unfortunately, I don't think it'll ever be a home again, a house. Yes, but not a home. I think it's good for the town, you know, it brings a lot of people here and those people always go to the gas station or they'll go out to eat while they're here. I've had the people that own the diner say, thank you for having this open because if it wasn't, we would not be able to open on weekends just because we don't have enough people coming in. It quite literally attracts people from all over the world. I mean, people travel from everywhere. They feel this draw to it. And I don't necessarily think it's a negative draw. It's It's a curiosity thing, but it's also just so notoriously haunted that people, you know, like to kind of cross it out. It, it's, it is a bucket list item for many paranormal investigators. But what about just historically? Do you get a lot of people who come in uh, for tours during the day as well? Oh, absolutely. Going back to the people around the world, I just had a guy from Vietnam mm. come do an overnight. Well, actually, he was doing a podcast and was only going to be in the house for like three hours or something. I'm not sure exactly what was happening. But he was talking about how popular the house is in Vietnam. You say Axe and everybody knows Velisca. I'm like, what? He's like, oh, yeah, very popular. I'm like, 
wow, that's cool. You know, it's neat that it's reached over there that their story is being told in Vietnam. That's amazing to me. But as far as the people, I mean, our day tours are booming. This year has been horrible, but has been for everyone. Right. I would say 80% are people into true crime. It's Iowa's oldest cold case. And it's people get so attached to what happened because of the children, I believe. We have this group of uh, senior citizen ladies that every month they choose a crime, a cold case, and they try and solve it themselves. You know, they'll come down to the house. As far as overnights, it's a lot of families, mom, dad, kids, mom and dad, or the mom and kids love the paranormal shows. The dad's here to drive and pay for the whole thing. You know, that seems to be a big part of it. We'll get six women that's known themselves their entire lives. And once a year, they do something wacky together, just come to the ax house. And I love that because there's always bottles of wine in the dumpster afterwards. <laughs> and the reason I love that is because they're having the time of their life. They're laughing till they cry. You know, they're catching up, they're sharing memories and that house needs laughing and love and memories in it. You know, that's why I love that. And then we'll get the paranormal groups. But it's it's not all that. I'd say it's 50-50. You know, a lot right. of true crime enthusiasts. And a lot of people that see Axe Murder House sign on the highway. What, what in the world is this? I had one guy, and I get this quite a bit. A guy came down. He was in a company car and a company suit. And he just stood there for a while asking questions. I was like, well, you can go on in the house, walk around. And he's like, I don't want to. Okay. <laughs> so... What can we do? He goes, well, I just lost my faith in any God or anything. And I wanted to come to the house just to see if I felt something. I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Because I sat there and talked about what I believe and, you know, and just my thoughts on life after death. A lot of people that come to the house have lost someone and they're just looking for something, an answer for life after death. Right. Usually I will start with my tour and I'll give this the history spiel. And then afterwards they come up and we just talk, we just talk for an hour, you know, and I love it. It's interesting that something so tragic can kind of produce so many positives down the line. You know, it's clearly it was something very awful that happened, but we're so far removed from it now. Time-wise, sometimes things like that just fade into obscurity. And yet here you have this this story that just keeps going and inspiring people strangely in very different ways. Now, what I'd love to ask you, just because we got some evidence and we investigated there that kind of uh, we thought might have some clues as to who actually committed the crime. Who, who do you think did it? Uh, who do I think did it? Uh, for some reason, I think Reverend Kelly was somewhat involved whether he did it or he happened in the house after it was over, I have no idea. But I'm really been on a, a big kick of an early traveling serial killer mm -hmm. because you have so many. And, you know, we do a lot of early tours before we open, which are Supreme Court judges for continuing education classes, law enforcement colleges. So we do a lot of educational as well. But the, the group of Supreme Court judges were very much on the early traveling serial killer kick as well. Who was the gentleman who was found? He Basically, he killed his family later on. Um, what was his name? Uh, Henry Lee Moore. 
Okay. I believe is the guy you're talking about. He killed his mom and grandma two months after this. Right. And then he was found, it was found the same way. The, the, the mirrors were covered and everything. And he was, I feel like he was in, in Chicago or something. I can't remember exactly, but. Oh, there was a Blackie Mansfield, but he produced a work punching, like handwritten hours he was working ticket as an alibi. But like, this is five years after the fact. Yeah. Why would he have that? There was also a Henry Lee Moore who killed his mom and grandma in Columbia, Missouri, two months after this, but it was so badly done. And he killed his mom and grandma for inheritance money. Mm. You know, it had motive all over it and he got caught immediately. But yeah, I mean, there's so many suspects. And one thing that I, I think people don't quite grasp is detectives question people for five years. Five years is a long time and a lot of gossip in a small town about a murder. There were hundreds of suspects. Old man so-and-so is weird. He did it, you know, which went nowhere. But F.F. Jones, Andy Sawyer, Blackie Mansfield went nowhere. Nobody went anywhere. And I've gone through 20 years of letters. F.F. Jones wrote his daughter in New York. I've thumbed through his personal Bible. I found nothing. Like these detectives did a great job. There's no leads really anywhere except for Reverend Kelly confessing. Mm-hmm. But, and one thing that kind of goes back is like in his confession, he said that he felt like he was in a dream state and like he was being led to do things on beyond his own control, which really creeps me out about the stabbing that happened and everything else, you know? And I think that's why I keep going back to him. I mean, it's just every day I've thought about this for 15 plus years and I have no idea. Well, I mean, I, I think... Even the ghosts could tell us, and we still wouldn't know for sure. You know, I always wonder if we're we're going to get a name one day, uh, or if we're going to get some sort of communication from them, telling us who the murderer was. But even then, you know, would we believe it? Uh, you know, I think that without any solid evidence, which I don't think is ever going to happen, I think this will probably remain unsolved. I appreciate your time. Thank you for telling us about the house. Thank you for conveying your experiences. I know that the house is currently open for tours, correct? Yeah, uh, well, it'll be open for tours come probably March for day tours. Uh, Overnights are year-round, so you can book an overnight anytime you want. Okay, great. And then where can people find you? Uh, Just Johnny Hauser on Facebook, uh, Instagram. All the social media is just backslash Johnny Hauser. Great. Well, I can't wait to see you in person again. Hopefully we'll be back out there at events soon. And thank you so much for chatting with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. I think that after my own experiences at the Velisca Axe Murder House and going further into its history, plus my conversation with Johnny, I can say that while I believe the home is very traditionally haunted, there is something even more mysterious than that at play there. I also think it's telling that throughout my interview with Johnny, he never used the word murder to describe the house, and maybe that is a cue we should all take. Maybe we should start looking at that home for what it was and what it is now, and not necessarily let it be defined by one dark day of 1912. Thanks for listening. I look forward to our next journey down a haunted road. Haunted Road is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. 
The podcast is written and hosted by Amy Bruni. Executive producers include Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. The show is produced by Rima Ilkayali and Trevor Young. Taylor Hagerdorn is the show's researcher. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.